at some point every Christmas, Matt, uh, my wife Tina comes to me and she says something like, Ken, put up the lights and don't kill yourself. And when she says that, every year, somehow I know exactly what she's talking about. How do I know? Well, my knowledge of what takes place around Christmas time provides a context in which Tina's words make sense to me. And if that context didn't exist, how do I know what she's talking about? You know, Ken, put up the lights. Don't kill yourself. It could, it could mean anything, right? And what if all we had was a post-it note from Tina 500 years from now, and she's, it says, Ken, put up the lights and don't kill yourself. We would think that there's some sort of existential suicidal crisis connected with putting up the lights. <laughs> Welcome to another sensational episode of On the Journey with Matt Swaim and Ken Hensley. I should say, well, it's sensational, Ken, because you're in California. I'm in the D.C. area. It's more swamp-sational here, but I'm glad oh, really? to be with you again. Good to be with you. So uh, just before we get into things today, just want to remind people that because it is the summer and Ken is in sunny California and I'm in swampy D.C., we are going to have some overlapping vacations. There's going to be a little bit of time off. We're going to take a bit of a break after this episode, but we will be back with lots more episodes of On the Journey. But in the meantime, we're still on baptism and we're digging into the New Testament today, Ken. More into the New Testament. Yeah. So where are we starting off? Let me back up just to set the context here. Again, what we're doing here is um, I'm telling my story, you know, the story of my own conversion in a way, and I'm talking about how baptism became for me a, a beautiful illustration of what the church means by how tradition and scripture function together. And that is um, how that the faith of the early church can provide an interpretive key to the New Testament writings. How the faith of the early church, the doctrine of the early church, the belief of the early church can provide a lens through which the teaching of the New Testament can be brought into focus. Um, baptism was a perfect illustration for me. Let me use a little analogy of what I mean here. At some point, Every Christmas, Matt, uh, my wife Tina comes to me and she says something like, Ken, put up the lights and don't kill yourself. And when she says that, every year, somehow I know exactly what she's talking about. How do I know? Well, my knowledge of what takes place around Christmas time provides a context in which Tina's words make sense to me. And if that context didn't exist, how do I know what she's talking about? You know, Ken, put up the lights. Don't kill yourself. It could, it could mean anything, right? And what if all we had was a post-it note from Tina 500 years from now, and she, it says, Ken, put up the lights and don't kill yourself. We would think that there's some sort of existential suicidal crisis connected with putting up the lights. You know, that, I mean, That's right. The amount of context that you have helps you understand what's meant by just a very few words. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's the analogy. In the same way, in a similar way, what I came to see was how the faith and practice of the early church, with respect to baptism in particular, but other things as well, provides a context in which a number of things that are said in the New Testament, that in their own, that on their own might be subject to two or three different interpretations, 
how they were illuminated, and I came to understand what was being said. And that's what we're really talking about uh, last week and this week. We're just using baptism as an illustration of this. So again, in reading the early fathers of the church, the apostolic fathers, reading the historians of the early church, it became very clear to me that the early church believed that baptism was a channel of grace, that it was a sacrament, that in baptism, God was active. The earliest bishops and theologians, they spoke repeatedly of how baptism washes away all sins, how we obtain remission of our former sins in baptism, how we are regenerated in baptism, enlightened, cleansed of sins, how we are set free and admitted to eternal life. You can find these kinds of phrases, this sort of language all over the early fathers of the church. Tertullian now, he wrote the first treatise ever on baptism very early, around 200 AD, and according to him, in baptism, four basic gifts are given the remission of sins, deliverance from death, regeneration, the new birth, and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Now, this was a view of baptism that had literally never crossed my mind as a modern American evangelical. For me, baptism was purely symbolic. Um, God didn't do anything when a person was baptized. Baptism was a rite, and I mean by that R-I-T-E, baptism was a rite by which a new believer in Christ could testify before the congregation to his or her faith. That's what it was. That's what it was to me, too, and I wasn't even a Baptist, right? It right. Was, it was this outward expression that we were really serious about what we believed. It was a chance for us to show that, no, mm-hmm. this isn't just my parents' faith anymore. This is something that I own for myself. Or, you know, I'm not just a person mm-hmm. who's coming to Sunday school for a few weeks now. I'm really serious about being a Christian. Yeah, and I want to state this, you know, in the congregation to everyone. Well, uh, so reading, uh, you know, reading John Henry Newman and then reading the early fathers of the church, it became clear to me that my view of baptism and the view of the early church were not the same. They were not at all the same. And I immediately wanted to reread Everything in the Bible relating in any way to baptism, I wanted to just dive back into Scripture, and I wanted to re-examine everything. I wanted to reread it this time in the light, though, of what I'd seen in the early church. I wanted to see if there was anything there that might actually support the Catholic teaching. And when I did, I was blown away by what I saw, man. And this is kind of how we ended last week with just the barrage of images mm-hmm. uh, in the in the Scriptures. And we were really focusing a lot on the Old Testament last week that are extremely rich with baptismal imagery. Yeah, beautiful. In fact, just to set context, I want to race through a, a bit of that material in order um, before we launch into some more New Testament passages. Um, first of all, you and I last week, and I learned at the time, but you and I went over this last week, I, I learned that throughout Scripture, we find that the themes of water and spirit and new life occur together again and again and again. When the earth is formless and void, what do we read? The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. And the next thing we read, let there be light and let the earth bring forth, you know, in other words, water, spirit, and new life. At the time of the crossing of the Red, I mean, excuse me, at the time of the flood, it was the Spirit of God blowing over the waters that caused the waters to subside so that new life would begin to grow on the earth. At the time of the crossing of the Red Sea, we saw it again. It was the Spirit of God blowing on the waters that caused the waters to part so that the children of Israel could walk into their new life <laughs> from the death of being slaves into the new life as free citizens, people under God. And the same with the waters of the Jordan we saw, allowing the Israelites to pass into the promised land. 
We looked at how Naaman the Syrian was instructed to dip himself in the Jordan seven times and how when he did it, he came up cleansed of his leprosy. And as, as you mentioned last week, his skin was like that of a newborn water spirit, new birth. Beautiful born, image of that. Born again, right? Born yeah, again. And, and we looked at how the man born blind was instructed by our Lord to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. It wasn't receive your sight by faith alone. It was go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he by faith went and washed in the pool, he came up seeing. Throughout the Bible, Matt, water and spirit and new life, these images appearing together and connected together again and again. And now here's what blew me away, which we didn't touch on last week. When we come to Ezekiel chapter 36 and the promise of God to one day make a new covenant, he says he will make a new covenant. It will not be like the old covenant where his word was inscribed on tablets of stone. Instead, his word would be inscribed on human hearts. I was struck by how this, how, how God's action in this new covenant was described by Ezekiel. Listen to this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You know, Ken, if you are looking for an Old Testament equivalent to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 about being born again of water and the spirit, it's right there in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will uh, give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. God is promising to give a new spirit through sprinkling of water. I mean, this, you know, these is, not, things, this is not throwaway language. No, it, no, it's not. And as you and I were both uh, admitting last week, these are things that I'd never seen before. Never. And then suddenly, it's not like some little minute uh, point somewhere in the book of Nehemiah that I'm pulling this stuff out of. Suddenly, I mean, we're talking about imagery that recurs again and again and again and again through the Old Testament, where water and the Spirit of God are brought together to bring new life. And I would venture to say that, Ken, you probably mm -hmm. preached on Ezekiel 36 on that very passage before as a Baptist pastor and never saw a connection to baptism. No, I never did. And and you're right. I loved this passage. And I saw it as a beautiful image of the new covenant and what God would do to change the hearts of his people. And I never thought about baptism. But at, at this point, of course, the gears were turning. Now, a few more words about this. Under the Old Testament, as you know, there were a number of ceremonial washings, washings of all kind. The author of Hebrews refers to these as baptismois, baptisms, and he tells us that these were, quote, not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. He describes them, that is these Old Testament washings, these Old Testament baptisms, he describes them as a matter of external regulations applying until the time of the new order, Ezekiel 36, that would come when the Messiah arrived. This is in Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. So it's when the Lord comes. And when the Lord establishes this new covenant in the Spirit, that he will actually accomplish, he will actually do by his Spirit what the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament merely foreshadowed. And and how will God accomplish this? I'd always have thought, well, well, it's just by faith alone. He accomplishes it by faith alone. But when we looked last week at the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan, You and I noticed something. We noticed that when Jesus was baptized in water, the Father acted. 
the Spirit descended on Jesus, and a voice from heaven was heard, This is my beloved Son. In other words, water and Spirit and Sonship, divine Sonship, new life. And so at this point, the thought was occurring to me, and really for the first time in my Christian life, Matt, what if the early church was right? What if this is the teaching of Scripture? What if God has chosen baptism to be the channel through which he will pour out the blessings of the new covenant? Do you realize how crazy it sounds to say something like that? Like, what if the early church is right and this guy 1,500 years removed from them isn't right? What if... What if a guy who was who studied under a guy who studied under a guy who studied under an apostle is right, and not this article I read the other day in Christianity Today? Like, could you a, even the fact that we used to think that way is crazy to me. But that's the way I used to think. I used to think, well, maybe this guy I heard at a chapel service at Asbury is right. I never used to think until stuff like this started occurring to me. What if the guys who were there and learned f- from two generations in? were actually right. What if they actually have something to say into this situation? That's a profound point. It really is. Yeah, I never thought of it either. You know, I just thought, well, you've got the New Testament, and then you've got a bunch of theologians, and they're all on equal footing. You know, um, Irenaeus is no different than Charles Spurgeon, you know, from the the 19th century. Yeah, I like Spurgeon, you know, for what he is, but he's, a lot of things happened before Spurgeon got here. Spurgeon was a bright guy. I loved him too. And many of his sermons are wonderful. Okay, but this question's coming to me. What if they what if they were right? You know, yeah, wh- as you said, what if the disciples of John were actually right about baptism? The ones who were actually taught and knew it. What if baptism is the channel through which God has desired to pour out his blessings? And what if new covenant baptism is a baptism of water and spirit? And what if the baptism of Jesus was the first instance of this new covenant baptism, the beginning? Now, St. Gregory of Nyssa certainly thought that it was. We read this last week, but listen again. It's so powerful to me. In the birth by water and the Spirit, Jesus himself led the way in this birth, drawing down upon the water by his own baptism, the Holy Spirit, so that he became the firstborn of those who are spiritually born again, and he gave the name of brethren to those who partook in a birth like his own by water and the Spirit. And when we discovered that only 40 or so verses later in John's Gospel, suddenly Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It, it, it was like a brick thrown through the window and hitting me square in the forehead. Jesus is talking about baptism here. He's talking about new covenant baptism. He's talking about, I mean, there's just... Do a study on the first four chapters of John and see how much water and transformation play in. I mean, you've got the wedding at Cana. Mm-hmm. I, this, these are not, water's not just some interesting symbol that lets us know that, you know, the spirit sort of flows where it pleases. There's like real sacramental import to the way that John is trying to help us understand the story of Jesus and what he's actually doing. That's right. We saw it last week in chapter one of John with the baptism of Jesus in chapter two, where he transforms baptismal water, you know, pure, water used for rites of purification and wine. Yeah, all of this is there. Okay. And so what I wanted to do at this point, and what we're going to do now is I want to read on through the rest of the New Testament. I want to see if there were any other passages 
that might support the teaching of the early church that in baptism sins are washed away, the Spirit of God is given, and we are made sons and daughters of God that is born again. So, so I read on through John, and I come to the book of Acts, Matt. At this point, the new covenant has been established in Christ's body and blood. The Jewish feast of Passover has arrived, and the Jewish feast of Passover celebrates the ingathering of the first fruits of the harvest. Jerusalem is packed with, with, with Jews from all over the diaspora. The Spirit descends on the apostles in the upper room. They go outside into the crowds. Peter stands up, and he begins to preach the first sermon of the Christian era. His hearers are cut to the heart, and they cry out, what must we do? And before you say this, Ken, I want you to think, would you have ever said this line from the pulpit? Absolutely no chance. Zero chance. Peter does not respond when they say, what must we do? Peter does not respond, you should accept Christ as your personal Savior. Um, you should come to faith in Jesus. Instead, Peter responds, here, here are his words, repent and be baptized, every one of you for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I had read this passage in this sermon who knows how many times, and for the first time ever, I found myself asking the question, is Peter saying that the remission of sins and the gift of the Spirit take place in baptism? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I continued on. I came to Acts chapter 19. Now, one of the strangest stories in the New Testament here, Paul encounters some disciples in, in the area of, of Ephesus. He asked them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And when they say to him, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, Paul responds, hmm, what baptism did you receive? Now, now again, I'd read this passage, I don't know how many times. I never thought anything of the passage, but this time, in the light of all that I had learned from the early fathers and what I was learning about water and spirit and all that in the Bible, this time it hit me. The question, why does the fact that these believers in Christ have not received the Holy Spirit, have never heard of the Spirit, why does this fact make Paul immediately think about baptism? Yeah, why doesn't he just say, well, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit? Yeah. He, he, his first move is, well, maybe your baptism wasn't the full baptism. Yeah, and he says, well, what baptism did you receive? And when they say, oh, we received the baptism of John the Baptist, which would have been the baptism leading up to the new covenant baptism, then he says, oh, okay, this makes sense. <laughs> he lays hands on them, and he baptizes them in the name of Jesus Christ. He lays hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Again, water, spirit, new birth. I read on, I came to Acts chapter 22. In this passage, Paul's telling the story of how he was struck down on the road to Damascus. He relates how the devout Christian believer, Ananias, came to him and said to him, listen to these words, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And again, it was just sort of like this, I felt like, have I ever seen this verse before? I mean, have I ever seen it before? Did, is and not only that, when does the conversion of St. Paul happen? Everybody thinks it's when he falls off the horse, right? And, I know, and at that the, point, but, it gets his attention, right? But there comes a point where he has to actually undergo this, this what, we will, what we now know, yeah. you and I, as a sacrament. And there's faith. The fact that he looks up and says, who are you, Lord? You know, God is working in him, 
But the full thing doesn't come until Ananias says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. And again, I'm, I'm thinking, is, is Ananias, I mean, did Ananias believe that sins are washed away in baptism? Why has this passage never stuck out to me like a sore thumb? Or was he wrong? Was were Christians getting it that wrong that soon after Pentecost? Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, using all this magical language to talk about baptism right there in the New Testament. I read on and I came to Romans chapter six, where Paul writes these words What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Good point. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And again, I found myself asking all kinds of questions that I had just never asked before. Is Paul saying that in our baptism we died with Christ? Is he saying that in our baptism something actually happened? You know, God actually did something to us that has freed us from slavery to sin? in order that we might walk in newness of life? Before, I would have said, no, nothing happens in baptism, nothing at all. Again, it's just a symbolic rite. It's a way of saying I'm a believer. But now, reading Paul's words in the light of everything I'd seen in the early church, and now everything I was seeing in the Bible with fresh eyes, I wasn't so sure. And I know you're going to get into some later parts of 1 Corinthians in a moment, but this is this helped make sense of some crazy passages in St. Paul about baptism that just never made sense before. So for instance, when Paul is talking about uh, divisions in church leadership at the very beginning of Corinthians, and he talks about, uh, he says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And I think I might've baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I can't remember if I baptized anybody else, Um, (laughs) which is sort of a funny aside from Paul. But then he goes on to say, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I had always taken that to mean baptism's not important. What's important is preaching the gospel. What Paul is saying is that somebody else baptized you. I'm coming in to catechize you as new believers. And that that makes so much more sense to me now in that context of everything you've been saying so far and everything you're getting ready to say. Yes, that's a good point. Great point. Well, I came to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Where Paul says, quote, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. I come to Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. My mind went immediately to St. Gregory of Nazianzus. I remember how I remembered how he had referred to baptism as the bath of rebirth, quote unquote. And I wondered again, when Paul says this, when Paul speaks of this washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, is he talking about baptism? And again, I you know, I witnessed I don't know how many baby dedications a few baby baptisms in my various traditions, mostly from the Armenian background, a few Presbyterian ones along the way. It may have happened, and I may have just missed it, but I never felt like we were talking about a bath of rebirth. Never. Yeah, like never. Like, like something never. actually happened here. It was more like, welcome to the church, mm-hmm. baby so-and-so. Um, it was more like, 
you know, say, thank God, like these five teenagers have said that they're going to take their faith seriously and own it now. Yeah, I never, think that never that did, there was a bath of rebirth. You know, Galatians chapter three pops into my mind where he says those who, who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's no more Jew or Gentile, male or female. I think that this was the pattern. Whenever the word baptism appeared and it was clear that it was talking about water, then I thought that was baptism. Whenever the word baptism was connected with the spirit, you know, uh, you know, you're baptized by one spirit, then I thought, well, that's not talking about baptism at all. That's talking about a, a different, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That these two were separated. And what I was beginning to see now is they're not separated in the New Testament. They're held together. The baptism, the new, new covenant baptism is the baptism with water and the spirit by which we are baptized into Christ, become one with him. And you made a good point about those early chapters. Um, of 1 Corinthians, where he wants to say, hey, you know, the people are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this or that. And, you know, they were all baptized by different people. Paul came in to teach them. Paul's work was to preach the gospel. Anyway, I finally came to 1 Peter 3.21. And this is what I want to talk about for a second. In the context, Peter is talking about Noah and how Noah and his family were saved through the waters of the flood. We know that story. And then he says this, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of a subtle point, but the phrase that caught my eye, Matt, was this phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason it caught my eye is I remembered that back in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Peter, Peter says that we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so get that? In chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about how his readers were born again into a living hope through the resurrection. Now he says, baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That same phrase pops up again. And the question came to me, is Peter saying here that even as Noah and his family were saved through the waters of the flood, so also we are saved through the waters of baptism not because the water is magical or not because it cleans the dirt off our bodies, but because in baptism, we are appealing to God for a clean conscience. And in baptism, God is responding to that appeal and he's cleansing our conscience by the power of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the being born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the being saved through the resurrection are talking about the same thing, baptism. So this is where, um, when I began to discover this, and, and this actually happened to me not first through baptism, but first through the question of the Eucharist. Um, and that is, you, you talked about the idea of hearing, you know, being born of the Spirit, or being, you know, baptized, mm -hmm. or having all these different terms that are used in different places, and you thought that they were talking about three different things. And you realize they were all talking about the same thing, which is baptism. It happened to me when I realized that breaking of the bread was a euphemism throughout the New Testament for Holy Communion. And I was like, oh, yeah. because I always thought breaking bread was going out for lunch with your friends. You know, you just want to have fellowship. It, you start to, this picture comes together and it's like the, the picture of, you know, the four blind guys walking around the elephant. One's touching his nose. It's like, well, this is a snake. You know, one's touching his back leg. It's like, well, this is a tree trunk, you know, and, and you realize that they're all talking about an elephant, and it was yeah. Just, and they're talking about it. In the, it, it yeah, it, they're it, just touching different parts of it and speaking of it in different ways. And again, just like my knowledge of what happens at Christmas time 
provides this context. It's my knowledge provides a context in which when Tina says, put up the lights and don't kill yourself, I know what she's talking about. In the same way, the the faith of the early church, what they were taught about baptism, what they believed about baptism, provides this context in which when Paul says talks about the birth of regeneration or the bath of regeneration, well, the words take on a new light, don't they? Okay, so having seen all this, Matt, on the one hand, there was this voice in me, and this is the Sola Scriptura voice, that was saying to me, Ken, these passages don't prove that in the New Testament, you know, the, the apostles believe in baptismal regeneration or, or that they have a sacramental view of baptism. These, these passages don't prove it. There are other ways to interpret each one of these passages. It doesn't have to be read that way. On the other hand, I had to admit that read in the light of the faith of the early church, read through the lens of the faith and teaching of the early church, these passages certainly seemed to be saying what the early church was saying. They seemed to be teaching that in baptism, regeneration takes place. Sins are washed away. The Holy Spirit is given in the same way that that poor man born blind received his sight in the pool of Siloam. Not before it, not after it, in the pool of Siloam when he went and, and he washed in obedience to Christ's command. But there was another thing that bothered me. And you alluded to this earlier. I was a preacher, and I knew somehow that because of my view of baptism, if I had preached a million sermons, I would never have spoken as these New Testament authors spoke. I'm not just saying I would never have spoken as the early church spoke. I would never have spoken as Paul spoke and Peter spoke. Or as Peter spoke at Pentecost, right. And I would have never heard a sermon that way either. Yeah, I would never have thought to conclude a sermon by saying, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, I would have said, you know, turn your life over to Christ, you know, accept Christ as your personal. Come down and pray with every nail, with every head bowed, you know, with every eye closed, you know, uh, you know, raise that hand if you you need a prayer or come down to the altar and turn your life over to the Lord. You would have never said, and I would have never heard. And I've been to a thousand altar calls in my life. And I don't think I ever heard someone close one by saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you. I never heard an evangelical pastor ever preach the gospel using those words, or, or, or words even similar. And so the question, though, was, why? Why not? Why is it that I would never have thought, if I had met someone who was a disciple and yet said, I don't even know anything about the Holy Spirit, why is it that it would have never occurred to me to ask them, hmm, so what baptism did you receive? <laughs> you know, it would never, ever have occurred to me to talk about baptism. Why is it that I would have never uh, that I would never have thought to say to anyone on earth, "Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins"? If I had been visiting someone in their home and, and and tears were in their eyes and they said, "I, you know, I'm a believer. I want to come to Christ," I would never have said, "Okay, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins." Why would I have never have spoken as Paul or as Ananias speaks? Why would I have never? have thought to say to anyone really on earth ever what I've said, baptism now saves you. If the teaching of the New Testament, okay, this is how I kind of thought it through. If the teaching of the New Testament had flatly and clearly contradicted the teaching of the early church with respect to the effects of baptism, that might have been one thing. You know, I was enough of a Protestant. I was enough of a believer in Sola Scriptura. 
If I had seen that the teaching of the New Testament flatly, clearly contradicted the teaching of the early church, I might have concluded that I needed to stand with Scripture, even if this meant standing against the first 1,500 years of Christian teaching. I might have thought that. But I could see now that the New Testament did not contradict the teaching of the early church. In fact, it fit nicely with the teaching of the early church. That's and, a, that's an understatement. It was in perfect continuity. I know. It, I'm just trying a to a lot be, more continuity than my tradition was, and that was you know. Weird. I think that you're right. It was I'm, weird. I'm just trying to to. I'm trying to be as as um careful as I can in the way I say this to others who believe in sola scriptura and believe in you know, and I'm simply saying this. It did not contradict the teaching of the New Testament. Fit very nicely, and I believe more. I think you're you're entirely right on that. It fit with the teaching of the early church. And then given the weight of this very early testimony, universal testimony, testimony extending over 1,500 years, really, up to the time of the Reformation, on what grounds, I thought, could I stand against it? On what grounds would I say to Ignatius of Antioch or Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose, Augustine, on what grounds would I say to them you're all wrong, and oh, I'm right. You, yeah, you'd have no grounds to do it. And this comes back again to something we've mentioned a few times, and of course, Marcus Grodi um, has a number of articles at chnetwork.org and, and episodes about you know the verses he never saw. Um, it, these things were completely invisible to me, completely invisible to me. The Romans road was highly visible. All have shin- sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you know, and- mm-hmm. God um, is all, holy. You know, all the- yeah, all the four spiritual law stuff and, and what must I do to be saved? You know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And I had that very sort of, I had the intellectual ascent part of Christianity completely down. I could tell you all about the part mm-hmm. of Christianity where you, you know, align your mind with the mind of Christ and you say, Lord, I don't want to make decisions for myself anymore about my life. I want you to make the decisions in me and for me. But I was completely blind to all this stuff about baptism, which is intertwined and interspersed and connected with all of it all the way through the New Testament. It's everywhere. Once you start to see it, you see it everywhere. That's exactly correct. You're exactly correct. And you know what? For me, Matt, even though this was just what I refer to as one measly little doctrine, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, this exercise, it changed the way that I thought about the relationship between scripture and tradition or the teaching of the early church. Before this experience, the only question I ever asked was, what do I see scripture as teaching about this? What became clear to me now is that what we see scripture teaching is colored by the lens through which we read scripture. How else could I explain the fact that suddenly all these verses, as you say, verses I never saw before, were suddenly just popping and jumping off the text to me, and yet before, um, I just sort of jumped right over them, or they didn't mean anything. Well, I became eager at this point to see if what I had found to be true with respect to the Catholic view of baptism might not be true of other beliefs as well, other Catholic beliefs. For instance, what about the Eucharist? What about the early church's view of the church? What about their view of salvation? Now, and these are some of the topics that you and I are going to address in the coming weeks, coming months, maybe even the coming years. Yeah, there's but a lot that's to That's where unpack. we're going next. 
Well, and and to be clear, when I was coming to these realizations about baptism and the Eucharist specifically, because those were the two things that were really kind of, they were among the top things uh, mm-hmm. that I was discovering as I was getting into the fathers. But I was living in central Kentucky in Protestant world, and I didn't know a single Catholic. And so I was thinking, what has Christianity lost? I'm looking around me, and I see nobody who's talking or preaching or acting like what I'm seeing here in the New Testament and in the early centuries. Christianity needs to reclaim these things. How is it that the entire Christian universe has lost this understanding of baptism, has lost this understanding of the Eucharist, has lost this understanding of everything else? And I didn't realize that not all of Christianity had lost this stuff, that there was this institution that had kind of kept the whole thing going. I just had not encountered it, it yet. When you think of it, when it comes to this specific issue, Catholicism has held this all along. The Orthodox churches of the East have held this doctrine all along. Even the Lutheran Church and the Anglican Church believes in baptismal regeneration. It was actually just the world that we were used to living in that is American, basically non-denominational evangelical world. Self-determination of evangelicalism, yeah. View this as something mysterious from the other side of the world. And you know, here's one thing that I would like to say to our to those those listening is that if this sounds weird to you, I mean, if it just sounds weird to you that God would use this action of faith, baptism, to truly wash away sins, to give the gift of the Holy, if this sounds weird, then think of it. Does the cleansing of Naaman seem weird to you when he dips in the Jordan and he comes up cleansed of his leprosy? Does that seem weird to you? Did you find that distasteful? And when and when the man born blind comes out of the pool of Siloam and he comes up seeing, do you find that distasteful somehow? Because I find it quite beautiful now. Oh, I do too. And again, the whole sermon that Peter preaches at Pentecost makes so much more sense. The whole thing that Philip says to the Ethiopian eunuch about being baptized as soon as this guy figures this out, so much of it makes so much more sense. And uh, again, we've covered a lot in not much time, Ken, and I wish we had more time. And of course, we're going to take a little bit of time off because you and I have some vacations and some family time to get to. But in the meantime, I want to encourage our uh, viewers and listeners to go to chnetwork.org. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and all kinds of other podcast servers that I've never even heard of. So check it out, chnetwork.org. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague, Ken Hensley. Ken, another rousing discussion. Thank you so you much. Ca- I thought you called it a sun, sun, sensational. Sun, a sensational, yeah. Well, it was that too. It, it was that too. It was good to be with you and you have a nice few days off and the same here and we'll be back soon. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken.